Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Jody Skipper, an associate professor of anthropology and Southern studies at the University of Mississippi. Her research is interdisciplinary and emphasizes representations of African-American lives in the realms of public history, public archaeology, and cultural representations in museum studies. Today, she's here to speak with me about her most recent book, Behind the Big House, Reconciling Slavery, Race, and Heritage in the U.S. South published by the University of Iowa Press in 2022. Skipper provides a candid, behind-the-scenes look at what it really takes to interpret the difficult history of slavery in the U.S. South by focusing on her own eight-year collaboration with the Behind the Big House program, a community-based model used at local historic sites to address slavery and the collective narrative of U.S. history and culture based largely in Holly Springs, Mississippi. This, in many ways, is a very personal book. Skipper lays out her experiences through an autoethnographic approach and provides advice to help other activist scholars of color negotiate the nuances of place, the academic public sphere, and its ambiguous systems of reward, recognition, and evaluation. Dr. Jody Skipper, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. Jett. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, this book is based on what is called an autoethnographic approach. And I have to admit, as a historian, I was incredibly interested to learn more about this approach and honestly, really jealous that this is uh, an approach that you got to employ when doing your own research. Uh, so I was hoping you could explain to everybody who's maybe unfamiliar with this approach, what exactly is uh, an autoethnographic approach? Yeah, sure. The autograph. Autoethnographic approach is a writing method that uses part memoir or autobiography and part ethnography to describe and analyze a personal experience in order to understand a cultural experience. And for me, I'm using that my personal experience as a public scholar in collaboration with a particular community in North Mississippi. And I'm trying to understand this cultural experience of heritage tourism in that particular place. You know, one of the things I really like about this book is you don't pretend to be some emotionally disengaged observer, but instead someone who inserts herself directly into the narrative that that you are explaining. And you recount your own personal triumphs and setbacks, as well as the triumphs and setbacks uh, of the larger project and organizations that you're working with. And so I thought before we get into the Behind the Big House project, which is is the fulcrum around which the rest of the book unfolds, uh, I thought it would be a great idea for us to get a better sense of, of who you are and what your background is. So uh, would you mind just giving us a little bit of understanding of how you became interested in the field of archaeology and specifically public archaeology and representations of African-American life? Sure. I actually began as a history major 
undergraduate. I'm loving this already. I'm loving this already. (laughs) I was off to a good start. You're a very good start. At Grambling State University. And I was really interested in thinking about where I came from, my ancestry. So I started studying Black Creole communities there. And at some point in my time at Grambling, I came across this documentary on slave-dwelling architecture. And they were not only talking about the ingenuity of enslaved people who built these structures, but about how material culture could help us to understand African-American past. And I wanted to do more of that. And I found out that doing that kind of research would have to happen in some type of anthropological archaeology program. So I started to look into folks studying plantation archaeology and ended up at Florida State University. And at that time, I found out that there was actually this field of African diaspora archaeology, of folks who were looking at the experiences of people who had ended up in the Western Hemisphere largely through the transatlantic slave trade. And there were folks looking more specifically at plantations in the Southeast, and that became my interest. So I started looking at material culture as a graduate student, looking at plantations in the Southeast, uh, thinking about just ordinary things that enslaved people touched on a daily basis. And I started to realize that I was doing this work, but there was a gap in between the work that I was doing and whether or not other people who are outside of academia had access to that research. And I started to think about what that gap met in the context of what I was doing. And I began to look into something called public archaeology by the time I got to be a doctoral student at the University of Texas, studying with people like Dr. Maria Franklin, who were leading a lot of this research that caused me and other students to think about what does it mean to make your research accessible? And at the same time, what does it mean to share authority with communities while doing this research from the initial stages of collaboration. So that's how I initially got from doing historical research, but then to some extent ending up as a historical archaeologist doing public archaeology. I love that trajectory, and I'm going to go off script just a little bit here, but uh, I think there's something just really special about the idea of kind of relinquishing the authority over the way a particular topic is interpreted uh, or understood. That must be really difficult to do as as scholars, right? We tend to think of ourselves as the expert in the field, and thus our, our role, and in many ways our jobs are to educate people about our areas of expertise. Uh, what was that kind of mental transition like for you? Were or, or was it much of a transition? Was this just something that came very natural to you to kind of relinquish some of that authority? I don't know if it came very natural to me, but it wasn't particularly difficult. And I think that it's because when I got to UT, there were a lot of folks doing something called activist anthropology. So they were literally teaching us that shared authority was a mandatory requirement in our work. People had different ideas about how that happened, but that was understood. So when I started to work on my dissertation project, the project started because I was working with the historically Black church community in Dallas that asked for a particular thing. They wanted a church exhibit. So I was responding to their 
request. And I think doing work that way made that process relatively easier Mm -hmm. for me to relinquish any idea of control (laughs) that I had in that particular case. Well, I absolutely love it. And I hadn't really thought much about it until you said that. Um, that, Yeah, that's, that's a tough thing to be able to do, again, especially as an academic when we're supposed to be the people who are telling other people uh, what to think, how to think, um, and things like that. So I thought that was a really interesting point that you brought up. I also, just another aside, um, you know, as you were talking about where you came from and going to Grambling, um, I was thinking about the Whitney Plantation and and just wondering, what is it about Louisiana, do you think? Is 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 there any connection between like your your early interest in this field and, you know, like the Whitney plantation, if you don't know, is, is I think one of the first former plantations that is devoted almost entirely to the life of enslaved people that lived there, uh, which is just outside of new Orleans. Um, so I'm wondering, is, is, is there something about Louisiana that, that just makes people in that state perhaps more open to some of these ideas? I'm not sure that's the case. I I really think in the case of the Whitney Plantation, it really had to do with a particular individual and then a group of individuals who are really set on doing this kind of thing. And I think uh, that's probably the case uh, for many, especially uh, private individuals and institutions that end up doing this kind of work in more public context or popular context. So if we think about, um, you know, Mount Vernon's and and Monticello's, those sites, they're usually responding to some either public shift in interpretations that, that they have to align themselves with after some public pressure. In the case of places like Whitney Plantation, where you had a a private attorney start to do this work and then gather a supportive network around that, I think it's very different. And I don't necessarily think that's exceptional to Louisiana. I think it just happened to it just happened to happen in Louisiana. Yeah, interesting. Um, And I guess this is a a good segue into the Behind the Big House project, which I think in many ways was also um, based on my reading of your book kind of the result of individuals, right? Kind of coming together and making this a thing that they wanted to commit themselves to in the same way that you described the Whitney Plantation project that they have going on. So um, could you just give us a little bit uh, of an idea about what the Behind the Big House project is and how you became involved in it? So Behind the Big House is a slavery interpretation program that was started by a couple of private historic property owners in Holly Springs, which is in the hill country of North Mississippi. When I found out about the project, I was teaching a class on Southern heritage tourism where we were thinking about broader heritage tourism issues in the state of Mississippi and the U.S. South more broadly. And I was interested in thinking about slavery, but I didn't find that many other folks in Mississippi had comparable interests. They were thinking about other types of tourism like blues and civil rights. And my students were interested in those types of tourism. A couple of years prior, I met a man named Joseph McGill Jr., who had started what he was calling a slave cabin project, now the slave dwelling project, where he was sleeping in slave dwellings and still is to bring attention to their historic preservation. He was contacted by Jennifer Eggleston, one of the private homeowners who started behind the big house when they were just getting their tour off the ground. They really wanted 
Joseph to be able to tell them about another template for doing this kind of thing. And they soon realized that the template didn't exist. There was no other community-wide slavery education program being run at a grassroots level. And I found out about this work through Joe and then contacted Jennifer and her husband, Chilius Carter, who had started this program in Holly Springs. So I started working with them in 2012 after they had the first Behind the Big House. And my students and I subsequently began working as docents for the program and continue to do that. So you said when they had the first Behind the Big House. So is this like an annual event that happens in these spaces or is this something that is open year round where people come and interact um, in these former slave dwellings? It has been an annual event each year in April. And there's a reason for that. Uh, Behind the Big House actually started in Holly Springs because Holly Springs has this pilgrimage tradition that started in the 1930s uh, that's uh, comparable to the pilgrimage tradition in places like Natchez and other parts of the state, where they've historically interpreted these big houses and the slave-owning families while largely neglecting the complicated experiences of enslaved people. And it's not to say that their interpretations of the slave-owning families are that complicated either, but that's what they tend to, to focus on, that and the architecture. So when Chilius and Jennifer moved to Holly Springs, it was against this backdrop of the pilgrimage. And they found out that they actually had a slave dwelling on their property. Now, this is the urban in urban slavery context where you had this big main house that they were living in, and then there's a kitchen quarter structure right next to it. And they realized that this structure was historically a slave dwelling, had been occupied at least by a black servant labor up until the late 19th century. And they wanted to do something about that. They wanted to tell that counter narrative. And their initial goal was to work with the Garden Club. They had a tenuous collaboration that first year, one that's been pretty difficult to sustain because of the different goals. But that's largely how this particular project came about. And when they came to my class the first time to talk about a lot of these issues, that helped me to really kind of think through what it meant to not only interpret slavery, but also how to deal with racial tensions at the same time. Absolutely. So you And I think that I might have forgotten part of your question. So if I did Oh no 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 that No, that was perfect. Um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to elaborate a little bit on like what the project really looked like and and the timing, really. Um, This isn't just something you can pop in um, and visit whenever you want, but it's actually part of this larger kind of... um, I I don't know how long it's open, but it's, it's, it's part of this, this kind of larger heritage kind of week or two weeks that people come to Holly Springs to kind of explore this antebellum past. And and it's usually a, a long weekend, so okay. from a Thursday to a Sunday, approximately in April, and that's comparable to how the pilgrimage runs yeah. as well. Perfect. Well, you brought up a couple of of, of um, 
things here that I think I, I would like you to elaborate on. One is the idea of heritage tourism. Um, so I was hoping you could explain a little bit uh, about what that is and then how heritage tourism is being used in a state like Mississippi uh, as, as a kind of economic driver uh, in some of these regions where they're emphasizing um, heritage tourism. Yeah, so heritage tourism is basically visiting historic sites that attempt to represent people, places, and events of the past in the present. It's, it's very, I think, general uh, in that sense. And in Mississippi, you have several types of heritage tourism. I probably won't get them all, but I'll give you a general sense. So uh, the, I think the big one is probably civil rights tourism because of uh, Mississippi's notoriety and infamy and infamy I guess where um, where civil rights uh, civil where the civil rights movement or the classical civil rights movement is concerned you also have blues tourism which focuses on Delta blues and Mississippi Hill country blues largely you have literary tourism. So when you think about people like William Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Tennessee Williams, for example, people who visit sites related to them. You also have um, a more recent Native American mound trail that people can visit. There's also blues marker trail associated with blues tourism, a country music trail, and then also these pilgrimage tours around the state that I, I put in sort of the Moonlight and Magnolia's Lost Cause, a mythology category, and then Civil War battle sites. So when we think about places like Vicksburg, for example. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You bring up Natchez. When I was a kid, my my mom's family's originally from New Orleans. And so we would go back there and visit. And I, I specifically remember us going up to Natchez. Um, and we went all to all of the plantations like you're supposed to do. And even as a kid, I remember asking questions like, so wh where did you know the enslaved people live? Uh, and they just shot that down really, really quickly. Like they were here, they got new clothes every year and look at this mantelpiece, isn't it fantastic? Um, and in many ways, I think that speaks to where the Behind the Big House project really comes from is, is you know, um, it seems like many people in Mississippi kind of surveyed the landscape of of kind of historical heritage tourism uh, and said something's kind of missing here, right? We're, we're, we're missing an important element of all of this. So what, what was it about, say, the emphasis on, on like blues heritage and civil rights heritage um, that, that seemed to be lacking uh, in terms of the experience of African descended people in a state like Mississippi? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I'll say, I think that they're both and all necessary, certainly, but I, some gaps were pretty evident. So when I started to do more research and critical or taking more of a critical look at blues tourism, I realized that a lot of the advocacy around blues tourism had to do with economic development, number one. And what folks thought, especially at, at public policy levels or uh, state official levels, is that somehow this economic development would subsequently lead to racial reconciliation. Like it would just automatically happen if you create this thing. And I knew that was problematic in itself. But the blues narratives, I think, are palatable because 
they also are reconciliatory. Black and white people, everybody loves the blues. What is there not to like? So that you could get this blues tourism and to some extent ignore the Jim Crow context that leads to blues music making, right? And then with civil rights tourism, again, now we have this Civil Rights Museum in Mississippi, which is wonderful, by the way. At the same time, I think that it falls into that category that uh, geographers um, Derek Alderman and Owen Dwyer refer to as the one cause, that the civil rights movement has actually been one and that we don't really have contemporary civil rights issues to contend with. So the continuum didn't exist for me. And looking at the roots of the civil rights movement and blues tourism, which essentially is slavery, didn't exist on this landscape where you're focusing mostly on this lost cause confederacy. So the lost cause is palatable largely to white Mississippians. I think the one cause is also palatable to white Mississippians, which makes them both acceptable, Mm -hmm. but doesn't do the work of critical engagement with race and racism, I think, that they probably should. Yeah, like the larger context around which the blues emerge, right? If you listen to blues music, it's not necessarily the most uplifting, right? It's certainly telling a narrative about struggle. Um, And then you get to the civil rights movement with this seemingly larger neglect of what the civil rights movement was really pushing back against. Um, Not just this one-off thing that solved every problem, but part of a larger kind of multi-century long effort by African descended peoples to kind of uh, be part of this larger American project that they've been excluded from fully participating in. Um, And then insert work like the Behind the Big House project. Um, What I really love about how you explained your experiences with the Behind the Big House project is you didn't come in, and maybe this is part of your larger relinquishing authority approach, which again, I think is just so fantastic. You didn't come in and say, look at all the fantastic things that I've done. And in fact, you went to pretty great lengths to say, even when you were given awards for this, this larger project, Project, you were always very careful to make sure that you gave credit where credit is due. And so since you've already explained the project a little bit, would you mind just telling us a little bit about some of the people who were involved in this? Because I think that's one of the really great things about this book is you kind of dive into the individual personalities and experiences uh, of all the people who are, I guess, many of the people who are involved in making these projects um, as successful as they were. So could you just, just give us like like a quick overview of some of the main players in these projects and and why? why they were maybe drawn to it? Yes, yeah, so I already mentioned Jennifer and Chilius, who co-founded the program. They worked along with several other uh, private homeowners, including uh, David Person, a local historic preservationist who owned, also had a slave dwelling on his property, and Genevieve Busby, another local homeowner who had a slave dwelling on her property, and there have been several others over the years. Uh, They've also had the privilege of this supportive network, including Joe McGill, and I mentioned him, uh, Michael Twitty, who many people may know, who wrote The Cooking Gene and also just published Kosher Soul. For those who don't know him, he's a very well-known Afro-culinary historian and chef. 
And then also one of my bioarchaeology colleagues, Carolyn Frywald, who came into the program either the first or second year and started doing archaeology excavations on site to help us think through foodways, uh, enslavement largely in foodways. And then uh, certainly not least, Linda Turner, a local woman who came to the program the first year and then the second year came through with busloads of approximately 600 local school students within a three-day period and continued to do that, continued to collaborate in that way. And then um, Tammy Gibson, who's also a travel historian and blogger who interprets the role of a laundress on site. And then Dale D. Berry and Wayne Jones, who also do, uh, uh, Dale D. Berry is a master clay craftsman and they do brick making demonstrations on site. So that's that's been our more consistent supportive network. And I hope that I didn't forget anybody in that. Yeah, one of the things I was really impressed with is the wide array of ways that everybody working on this project uh, interprets and then demonstrates the lived experience of enslaved people um, through, you know, the culinary cooking and traditional ways. You've got the brick making demonstrations. Um, and then one of the things you brought up that I thought was really interesting was the archaeological excavations that you're doing on site. So what uh, were some of the things you find in these archaeological excavations that help you understand the lived experience of enslaved people on these sites? And so what we find in this case, I think, are what we largely expect to find, like um, pottery shirts or mostly these general white wares. Sometimes you'll find uh, more specific detailing or maker's marks that can get you, get you a more specific occupation date. And in a case where we did where we wouldn't know the date, that would be very essential, right? In this case, we do have some sense of occupation, but they're also utilitarian wares, so that might give you a sense of whether they were storing flour or something of a liquid, if there's a glaze inside, they're just a, a variety of things. Also sometimes faunal remains, and that's not my particular focus, but my bioarchaeology colleague, so she can you know, tell if we've got pig, cow, or, or wild deer or something of that sort. So sometimes those things come up. Also a lot of uh, metal remains, nails, and those, those types of things. Yeah, I was thinking about a documentary I watched on Monticello and how they were excavating where they believed the enslaved people used to live. And he said, you know, they didn't leave thousands of documents or letters, but they left behind trash. And we can learn so much about their lived life from the trash that they left behind. And that's something that has always really stuck with me. And it seems like that is, is kind of the approach that you have to take when you have, you know, dozens, hundreds of people who, who weren't allowed to leave written records behind. So I think that's 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 really great to know that that's something that's replicated there, too. Yeah, trash um, is gold for archaeologists. Hey, historians love trash, too. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, you can really do a lot with that. Um, you know, one of the things that surprised me about the book when I first read through it is that you don't spend the entire time talking just about the Behind the Big House project. And in fact, you kind of branch out into something called gracing the table. Um could you give us a little bit of an idea of what gracing the table is and, and how that's related to the behind the big house efforts? Sure. Gracing the table is a local racial reconciliation group. And it's actually co-founded by David Person, one of the historic property owners that I mentioned, and Alicia Williams McLeod, who was then chair of humanities at Russ College, which is a 
HBCU in Holly Springs. And they got together right after the first Behind the Big House at David's house, along with some of Alicia's students, and realized that they were having this very engaging and critical conversation about race that doesn't normally happen in a place like Holly Springs. And they wanted to think about how to keep that going. So they started to look at other like truth and reconciliation models. And one that they really found interesting with this was this model that this organization coming to the table has. And that group was founded through Eastern Mennonite University. And its primary goal is to connect descendants of enslavers with descendants of enslaved people to talk about the impacts of slavery in the present. So gracing the table does something comparable. It takes behind the big house beyond site interpretations to what it means to think about the impacts that doing this kind of work has on local people. And one of the main objectives, I think, also became gracing the table, trying to think about how to literally connect to descendants of people who were enslaved at some of the behind the big house sites. And we were really privileged to have a descendant Deborah Davis, who lives in Illinois, but in the St. Louis area, who had done a lot of genealogy work around Mary Burden, who historic, who owned Burden Place and had Burden Place built by 1848. And she had all of these genealogy records, knew that her family was connected somehow to this property, contacted David and started to come along with other family members during family reunions each year, and then also started to help us with interpretations at Behind the Big House. So these are things that you can't predict will happen, that you can be very surprised by, but I think really start to help transform communities. What is it like for people who are descendants of the people who used to live in these places to come back? I mean, I can't even imagine what that experience must be like. I mean, what's what's their, their engagement with these places that they know their ancestors lived? I think it, it really depends on each individual. Some people just frankly won't, and that's understandable. I think for those who do, and I have a graduate student, Susie Davidson, who wrote a master's thesis on about that. She interviewed several people and they really talked about how powerful the experience is to be able to connect to ancestors in that way, to be able to understand in a more literal and tangible sense what sacrifices they made. And I think for people like Deb Davis, who are actually so invested that they help interpret, I think it, it really does a lot of that work. I think it's it's probably a very healing experience for a lot of people who are able to reconnect in that way. Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is, is American specific, so I don't want to sound like an American exceptionalist or anything like that, but um, this kind of interest in learning more about our history, sometimes it seems like um, Americans are kind of culturally devoid of like a link to a distant past. And I think that's why things like ancestry, like DNA results are so popular, um, doing, doing genealogy, right. To like figure out like, what am I connected to and how am I connected? Um, 
and that's something I've, I've, I've often talked to my own students about is, you know, there are some people who have the privilege of being able to do genealogical research that goes back beyond 1865, uh, and some people do not. Um, and I can only imagine uh, what the experience must feel like for people who are looking for that kind of connection to say, hey, this is where I know my ancestors literally worked and lived and breathed and loved and cried and did all of these things. Uh, I just can't even imagine what that experience must be like. Um, okay. So one of the things that I love about this book is again, it's, it's, it's personal, it's real, it's raw. You talk about the successes that you've had. Um, but you also talk about a lot of the struggles that, that not only you encountered, but members of the larger team. Um, so what are some of the larger lessons you hope communities and engaged scholars can take away from your recounting of the experiences with the behind the big house and gracing the table projects? Yeah, so I, I think that one of the biggest lessons that I'd like people to take away from this is that it's very possible and practical work to do, even with little economic and human resources. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's very practical. And I often hear people say, well, we can't interpret slavery yet because we don't have enough information, we don't have enough money, or we don't have enough people. And I think that this is a model for what can possibly happen if you just have enough willing participants and then eventually get a supportive network to do this. I think the thing that we probably, at least in gracing the table, would have thought a bit more, I think, consciously about is what it means to take care of yourself through that process. And even uh, David Person suggested that we consult a psychotherapist early on, and uh, we did that. But I think that we probably should have been more consistent about that because it can be draining work. And I think that for academics who are thinking about this kind of thing, I think I think that there should be some understanding that we do have the ability to transform communities through the work that we do. At the same time, I think that you really have to be conscious about what that means in terms of your academic obligations and whether or not the university or university structure or departmental structures will support that kind of work. And what does it mean for them to value or not value that type of work? Absolutely. Um, we'll get to that in just a second, I promise, because that's how the book ends. And I, and I thought that was just a really powerful testament of your own experience and a really honest assessment of, of how being an academic can sometimes complicate one's ability to engage in this kind of work because it, it hasn't historically been as uh, well received academically as, say, a monograph or something like that. But we'll get to that in just a second. I don't want to leave the projects just yet. Um you mentioned that this is really, really draining work, um, you know, both both kind of in a physical and, and, and emotional and mental way. Um, I wonder what the reception has been, kind of broadly speaking. Obviously, you've probably got a core of really committed people who are really excited about the success that you've had. Um, but I'm thinking about Mississippi more broadly, right? And you're trying to make a, a, a very strategic um, addition to this idea of, of heritage tours and things like that by inserting the narrative uh, of slavery and making the connections to this past, uh, to the very present. Um, what has the reception been more broadly um, of, of the work that you and so many other people have been doing in places like Holly Springs? I think that the reception more broadly has been 
pretty good overall. I think especially with uh, state institutions like the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Mississippi Humanities Council, which has been our biggest supporter. I think that they now look to us as a model for doing this type of thing. What Julius and Jennifer had hoped is that more communities in the state would take this on, and that really hasn't happened. So it, it could be that people really still don't see the value in it or have the desire. It could be a variety of things. It could be that they might not be as supportive as I tend to think <laughs> that they are. And I'm sure that there are people who aren't supportive as well. I tend to not get a lot of that. I tend to not get a lot of those comments. I would guess that some of my white collaborators probably get more of that backlash directly uh, than I do, but I, again, I get less of that. I think there we do have some strong support with particular people in Holly Springs. Then there are people who are just kind of indifferent or distance from it, which is to be expected as well. One thing that I didn't expect to happen that did happen is that uh, one year, one of my archaeology colleagues, Dr. Jody Barnes, came to visit Behind the Big House in Holly Springs. And the next year had a Behind the Big House in Arkansas going, which is still going. So again, something unexpected, but I, I think that has been a very welcome consequence of this work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the idea of kind of providing a model that other people could take bits and pieces of or maybe try to replicate in, in its entirety in other places is a really valuable lesson. Um, you know, I was struck when I visited the Whitney Plantation, you know, I was like, this is this is really great. This is fantastic. Um, but not every place has a plantation that that they can, you know, use as the venue to to display all of these things and kind of engage in these conversations. And what I liked about your explanation of the behind the big house project and gracing the table is like that, that scale isn't absolutely necessary, right? You can certainly kind of um, work these in ways that fit the community that you are working with and working in. I thought that was really powerful and important. Um, as you already kind of teased and, and for the listeners who are academically inclined, uh, the last chapter of your book, I think is really aimed at, at, an academic audience uh, as you explore your own journey through uh, the tenure process and you connect that that process to the larger kind of issue of universities and, and R1 universities, R2 universities, uh, kind of slowly coming around to embracing public projects. Um, this, this is something that public historians have grappled with for a while, public archaeologists uh, as well. It's kind of seeing this work as something that's legitimate, substantial, uh, and tenurable, which again is really, really important for academics for obvious reasons. Um, do you care to elaborate a little bit on, on what your process was like and how you think universities and scholars can incorporate this kind of public work into our larger idea of what scholarship is and what what scholarship is important and what scholarship just counts as service, if that makes sense? Yeah, I can. Um, when I first got to the University of Mississippi, the then president, I think, engaged in a lot of rhetoric about what it does mean to transform local communities. What does it mean to be at the flag flagship institution as an academic in the poorest state in the nation and our personal responsibilities. And because I was already an activist anthropologist, I felt like the work that I hoped to do would fit right within 
that narrative. What I didn't realize at the time is that the university had no community engagement structure to support that, and that tenure and promotion guidelines largely didn't support that as well. We have very uh, traditional tenure and promotion guidelines, which focus on teaching research and service, as most do, with research just carrying a disproportionate amount of weight and often means publishing and not much else. And the amount of time that this type of work takes, the potential deliverables of public-facing work don't always equate to publishing. And those are things that I, I really didn't come into the process understanding and thinking about, but struggled with the entire time because this work was taking a lot of time to understand. It's not traditional research. I was collaborating and I learned things that can inform academic research as a consequence of that. Very valuable things uh, that were very helpful with the university's branding as well in terms of community engagement work. But I just did not have the support that I needed to successfully do that without wearing myself into the ground to a huge extent. So I think that when universities talk about things like, especially DEI initiatives now, that has to really transition into conversations about what it means for academics to do this kind of work, whether they be public historians or consider themselves public humanities scholars, activist scholars, it could be under a wide umbrella of things. What does it mean to really value that work through tenure and promotion guidelines? And more recently, IUPUI came up with a diversity track that you can get, uh, that you can apply for TNP through this particular diversity track, but it's one of the few institutions that's actually made an overt commitment to that. Most of them have not done that yet. Yeah, I, I I appreciated the honesty of of that last chapter when when you are very literally talking about your own experience at the institution you currently work at um, about how how you struggled to kind of get some kind of recognition that this was important work it was scholarship uh, and every bit as as worthy of tenure and promotion as someone writing a monograph um, so I thought that was really really important and and my hope is maybe you have provided some legitimacy to to this um, approach that other people can then bring to their own institutions and say, see, this is something that is valuable and worthwhile and that we should begin to incorporate into this. So I really appreciated your honesty. Um, and I think many academics who engage in this kind of public facing work would absolutely appreciate that as well. I, uh, I hope so. And I'll, I'll just add that, you know, it's, I think that academics will probably be disproportionately attracted to this chapter. At the same time, I do think it's important for community practitioners to understand what's going on on the other end to some extent when they ask academics for help, right? A lot of my community partners had no idea. It wasn't their burden to take on. At the same time, I get quite a number of requests from people, I'm sure other academics do, but they might not recognize what our limitations are, which means that I do think communities 
are in a pretty, I think they have the potential to bridge this town and gown, gown divide by holding universities accountable for not valuing this type of work. And I'm also hoping to bring some light to that. That is a really important point um, and one that I had not considered fully. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, I, I just kind of want to end on, on this larger maybe all too current question, you know, we're, we're in at least where I'm at in Florida, right? Like we are in a, a, a place where talking about reinterpreting history and, and, you know, full incorporation of an appreciation of the experience of enslaved people and African-American history more broadly is really coming under attack in a lot of ways. Um, and many people might be hesitant to engage in this kind of stuff. Uh, so I I wonder how you feel the kind of mood is changing in a place like Mississippi, whereas, say, five years ago, this this work is is really appreciated by a broad swath. Do you feel like there's there's been a movement uh, in, in, say, the last two or three years that is really kind of putting the work you do in a much more controversial um, and kind of heated political environment that will make this more difficult to sustain over time? I think that it, it certainly has with uh, state legislators, certainly, who have uh, been proponents of racist policies and, and practices for years anyway. I, I think maybe what has been most influential is uh, the movement for Black Lives and the anti-racist movement over the past couple of years, because at least now, even students, other faculty members, administrators, at least have a language through which to talk about and think through these things, even with a lot of these attacks going on. I think we certainly see a lot of impacts on K through 12 educators who are really concerned about what they have the ability to teach in Mississippi and some of the consequences there. And that might, that might also impact the work that we do with K through 12 students in Holly Springs. I'm just not quite sure what that's going to look like yet. I'm trying to lean more into um, some of the things now that we're able to talk about because people actually have more of a language Mm -hmm. for it now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, I think it's going to take, not to thrust more upon your shoulders, but uh, I think, you know, the work that you're doing um, and everybody that's involved in the Behind the Big House project is really important um, because I think you can really point to like tangible things, right? And say, this isn't just a made up history that we're, we're concocting out of thin air uh, to try and, you know, push back against some, some narrative that, that we're trying to tear down. You're saying like, these are, these are literal things that, that enslaved people created. This is where they lived. This is how they functioned. Uh, and I think that public facing experience really kind of removes the shroud of, of, of mystery, right? Not many people read academic books outside of our fields, but what you're doing is really exposing people to this stuff and saying, look, this isn't going to you know, completely upend your lived experience, but you are just acknowledging that there's an important lived experience that hasn't really been incorporated into the larger narratives in the ways that it should be. And so I really think it's going to be work like the Behind the Big House that helps us bridge this divide of animosity between you know, politicians being politicians and trying to get people riled up and then people saying, well, well, what is it that that academics are actually doing? I think pointing to projects like that are going to be really, really important. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and the work that all of your collaborators are doing uh, as well. 
One last question. Uh, I promise big takeaways. People are reading this book. What do you want them to, to, to think? Uh, or, or, or what are some larger questions you'll, you'll hope that they consider uh, after, after they close the book um, and, and kind of continue to live their lives? What's, what's, what's the big takeaway that, that you're looking for here? I really want people to think about how race and racism has impacted their lives if they haven't done that yet. And then also how it impacts other lives with whom they live and work on a daily basis. And it's, it's, I don't think the goal there is just some sort of maybe kumbaya empathy that we hope that people would have, but what does it mean to accept responsibility and be accountable for our actions today. And I think that that's the transition that historical research often doesn't make. So people might go, oh, I understand history now, but they don't necessarily understand how it resonates today, why we might have a water crisis in Jackson, why Black people were disproportionately impacted during Hurricane Katrina. Those are the links that we need to be able to help people make. And I think that you have to really go to the past to do that. But there has to be some way of facilitating that process to the present for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better way to end than, than, than that connection. I, I, I often ask students, like, you know, the history and the connections. Now, what are you going to do about it? Um, this isn't just something to be, uh, you know, studied that has no impact on the present. So I think that's a really great and powerful way to end. Um, well, the book is Behind the Big House, Reconciling Slavery, Race, and Heritage in the U.S. South, and it is available now through the University of Iowa Press. Uh, Dr. J- Jody Skipper, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Jed. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to New Books in the American South.